The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Turn with, the, with me to the book of Daniel, chapter 1. We're beginning a series in this book, a very interesting book, very powerful book. The first half of the book is narrative. You might call them hero stories, as they're sometimes called, uh, in which Daniel and his close friends are in various trials, and God delivers them, and we see God sovereign over kings, and we see amazing Miracles, And then the second half of the book is apocalyptic literature, as it's called, these visions and dreams that are of things yet to come. And so it's two very different parts of the book, but both of them reinforcing the truth of God's sovereignty, of God's rule over all kingdoms of the world. But we want to begin tonight in Daniel chapter 1. Let's hear the word of God. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, Youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. 
At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all the literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. Is it hard to be in exile? It certainly would have been. I spoke to one of our refugees, a young man who's probably around 30, at an event with some of the refugee men the other week. And he said to us at one point, it's so hard being in America. We might think, why? It's a great place. But of course, the cultural adjustments, learning the language is just so hard. Getting a job, if you don't know English very well, it's very hard to get a very good paying job and then to have to pay for rent and car insurance and all these things. In fact, he said, it's so hard. I wrote to my brother and said, do not come here. It's just too hard. And that, we might say, is kind of a good exile. That's leaving a dangerous land, refugee camps that some of those young men have been in their whole lives, and coming to a land of relative blessing and opportunity and things like that. But it just shows you, gives you just a taste and a glimpse of how hard it is to be essentially a stranger in a strange land. Daniel is a book about God's people in exile. It's hard to imagine what that exile would have been like. Although in another sense, it's not an exercise in pure imagination for any of God's people to think about living as an exile because we know that the scripture tells us that is true for us. And even God's people living today in the West even though the hostility of the world is generally more restrained in Western society because of our Christian heritage, still, we feel it. Certainly, though, God's people in many places and many times have endured a much more severe experience. And the world's enmity often shows up simply in the way the world is constantly seeking to squeeze us into its mold, as Romans speaks about it. There's pressure from the world. There's pressure on each one of us this week, where we live, where we work, in our families, with the culture that surrounds us. It's just the air we breathe. Pressure about how we are to dress and look, how we are to think and act What are the jokes and the things that we're expected to laugh at? The way we are pressed to conduct business in the world. The things that we are told we ought ought to value and to seek and to love in this world. There's always this pressure from the world. The book of Daniel is written to God's people 
in exile and from exile, written when God's people were experiencing the brokenness and pain of life in exile far away from home. And so it's written for God's people of every time. And it's designed to encourage us in our walk with God, the God who was with the Israelites in their exile and is with us as we are strangers and sojourners in the world. We ask ourselves, what is it that we need to know to live a a life of faith in exile? We think of the pain and the brokenness of this world, the sickness, the broken relationships, the sorrow, the death. What do we need to know as exiles, as strangers and sojourners in this world? Our first point is this. We need to know God's sovereignty over our lives. It's interesting that Daniel begins with a description of the beginning of the exile. In verses 1 and 2, we find that during the reign of Jehoiakim, Nebuchadnezzar comes and he besieges Jerusalem. And this is not the point at which the city is destroyed. That's about two decades away yet. But the city is besieged and essentially surrenders and Nebuchadnezzar carries off treasures of various kinds, and he carries off a large part of the cream of the crop of the young people of Israel. Verse 2, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. There are three places in chapter 1, verse 2, verse 9, verse 17, where it talks about God gave something. Here he gives Jerusalem into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. It's a fulfillment of Leviticus chapter 26 when we read that if the people of God persistently violate the covenant of God in their rebellion and their lack of faith and their idolatry, then the curses of the covenant will fall upon them. And specifically, in Leviticus 22 verses 33 and 39, one of the results of that is exile. So God is sovereign over what happens here. Daniel and his companions going into exile. It's not taking God by surprise. It's been prophesied. It's been predicted. And even more specifically in 2 Kings 20, much nearer in time than Leviticus. Do you remember the account that Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem miraculously experience God's deliverance from Shennacherib? And God delivers the city from them. But almost immediately following upon that, we find Hezekiah entertaining envoys from Babylon. Now, it's the the Assyrians who had been turned away and who had besieged Jerusalem before this. Now, envoys from Babylon come. And we read that account and we may wonder about it because Hezekiah gives them the grand tour. Remember that? He shows them all the treasures of the temple. And you might think, well, and and then there's this prophecy from Isaiah that, okay, Hezekiah, because you did this, God's going to have all those treasures taken off to Babylon eventually. And that's what's taking place here. And we might think, well, was it just Hezekiah's pride? It was probably much more than that. It was probably that giving the grand tour, showing the wealth of Jerusalem was part of how treaties were formed. It wasn't just like show and tell in first grade that, hey, look at this, and okay, see you later. Thanks for coming by. No, this was part of probably a process of an alliance. And the reason that this was 
so wrong in God's eyes was because God had just delivered the nation from Assyria by his mighty power. And what does Hezekiah do? He uses a worldly alliance to make sure that Israel is preserved, that Judah is preserved. And God very specifically then, again, prophesies the exile that will come. It will not be in Hezekiah's lifetime, but descendants of his. And though we're not told exactly, think Daniel and his friends of the nobility at least, if not of the royal house. It's coming on them. God is sovereign over this. God gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his Nebuchadnezzar's hands with some of the vessels of the house of God and also the cream of the crop of the youth. The irony here is that Hezekiah sought to preserve his treasure by foolish worldly alliances, which ended up with the treasures being taken Babylon, and we might say even the truer treasures of his own descendants being taken off. And so Daniel and his friends are in Babylon. You young folks, they were probably young teenagers at this time. We're guessing. And Daniel's still alive 70 years later. We see at the end of chapter 1 this reference to Cyrus and his first year of reign when Medo-Persia has conquered Babylon, and there's the decree to return. And Daniel lives through all that, maybe from age 14 to age 84. A wonderful book, a, a wonderful description of God's faithfulness. The faithfulness of God in even his judgments, as we see here, is ultimately encouraging to God's people. Why? Because it tells us that God is sovereign over all things. And also that he has not forsaken his people in their exile. He is sovereign. He's going to restore them, we know. He's promised that. And you and I need to know this ourselves. In our earthly pilgrimage, we need to know about the sovereignty of God over our lives. Sometimes there are things that we go through that we can trace back to the sins of the fathers being visited on children after them. I have a close friend my age who talks about the brokenness of both sides of his family being enmeshed in alcoholism and just the impact that had on him in his early life and just how that was so hard. But a believer can look back on that and say, okay, this is broken, this is bad, this is not good, but my God is sovereign over this. My God has not forsaken me in my so-called exile. And maybe you're at a point in your life that you can look back and see something in your history or your heritage or even in your own life, even in your, the ways that our own sin causes us great problems and heartache, but to know that for God's people, he is sovereign over these things. We need to know the sovereignty of God over our lives. But secondly, and this is the longer point we want to look in of our three points, we need to know and recognize the powerful tendency to conform to the world. In our sojourn on this earth, we need to know the powerful tendency to conform to the world. 
And we see it described in Daniel 1, the reprogramming plan of Nebuchadnezzar for these young people from Judah. And it wasn't a completely evil plan or wrong in some senses, but clearly it was a worldly plan. It was a worldly reprogramming they were going through, and clearly it was not oriented around the true God. It was a pagan nation. It was a pagan culture and a pagan king. We see three ways that this reprogramming takes place in our text. One is that notice that we see the Hebrew names of these young men being changed. Each of their names had meaning. Daniel, God is my judge. Hananiah, the Lord is gracious. Mishael, who is what God is. Azariah, the Lord is a helper. And those good Bible-based, God-based names are changed to names that reflect pagan gods based on Babylonian gods. So, first of all, in a sense, their identity is changed. But secondly, we see that they are instructed in Babylon, in Babylonian language and literature. We're told that that was the plan. And so the Babylonian myths and legends would take the place of Scripture as the source of these young people's worldview. They were going to be reprogrammed in that sense. And then thirdly, we see that they're provided for by the king. There's a new dependence on a new master. He's going to provide food and wine from his table for them. And the goal was that in three years, these young men would have a new identity and a new mindset, and especially that their old allegiance to Judah and Judah's God would be removed. And this reprogramming plan was a a subtle combination of promise and threat. There were good things, there was provision, but there was also warning to it as well, as we'll see as the book unfolds. And it was a reprogramming to forget Yahweh, to forget the Lord and his lordship and his provision, and to make them dependent on another God, small g. What do we see about the young men's response to this? Well, It's interesting, as the book unfolds, they do not seek to escape Babylon or isolate themselves. And we don't see, you know, real vigorous laying down their life unto death at this point. They didn't refuse to study the literature or language. There's no evidence of that. They didn't refuse to live there where they were told to live or to work and so forth. They accepted their calling as part of the providential will of God, for he had brought them sovereignly to this place. And they were also obeying Jeremiah 29, verses 4 to 7, where Jeremiah, under inspiration of God, writes to the exiles and tells them to work and to seek the good of the city where they live. They weren't supposed to just rebel against it. They were, with all the heartache and all the pains and all the limitations of being Strangers in this land, they were told to seek the good of the city there, but also remembering their identity and inwardly resisting assimilation. And that's what we see here. Notice how they do this. Again, the three ways that they were 
that it's evident here. Look how it's not quite what um, the Babylonians might have wanted. Number one, we find as the book unfolds that they preserve their Hebrew names. I think that they went by both names, just like the refugees usually change their names to English kind of names or adopted children change their names so that's more something that English speakers can say. Probably they used both names, um, but they preserved their Hebrew names and identity in that sense. And, and it's interesting by cha- chapter 6 when we see Daniel in the lion's den, um, when the king at that time calls out to him, he doesn't say Belshazzar. He says, Daniel, are you there? It's interesting. He's using the Hebrew name. Daniel's maintained that. This applies to us when we think of our identity. We need to be regularly reminded of our heavenly identity, our heavenly citizenship. And that is by the fellowship of the saints as we come together, as we encourage one another to love and to good deeds. We need to take every opportunity to gather with our fellow exiles and to talk of our true home, the true heavenly realities, the kingdom of God. It's said, I don't know how true this is, it's, it's said that groups living in exile are more patriotic fervently than those who are in their home nation. Somebody has said that St. Patrick's Day is a bigger celebration in Boston than in Dublin because the Irish are here in America. And maybe some of you have experienced that if you've been in a foreign nation on July 4th. And, of course, that nation where you live isn't celebrating this, but maybe the American community there is. And they're celebrating it big time because they're proud to be Americans. And that's how it needs to be with us. We need to resist having our identity be conformed to the world. And one of the most powerful ways we we do that is in fellowship with the people of God. But secondly, we see them preserving their biblical worldview. In the midst of a pagan educational system and society, it's going to come out as the book unfolds that these young men are walking to a different drumbeat. They have not bought into the worldview of Babylon. They do not worship the idols that they're called to when it comes to it, even in the face of death itself. And they stand strong in that. This is a challenge for you and for me in increasingly secular America. It's true for training your children, whether you homeschool or Christian school or public school. And it's interesting, a number of commentaries that I read talked at length about schooling. And each of the three commentaries I trusted the most talked about the fact that there's no simple answer for Christian parents to train their children wisely that we cannot say you have to public school, you have to homeschool, you have to Christian school, and that it's a complex thing and every parent has to be wise and to seek to pray about this and to work at it, and it depends on a lot of factors. But it's a difficult thing to do, to raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord in an increasingly secular and hostile society. Interesting that... Daniel and his friends came to know the language and literature of the Babylonians, but in a way that was subject to a biblical worldview. And it's interesting when you come to verse 17 and you see the third God gave, 
He says, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all the literature and wisdom. That was the literature and wisdom of Babylon. In other words, God gave them success in this heathen educational system. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. So the goal of parents is not in either extreme, as Walt Mueller talks about in his, in his book, Age of Opportunity. He talks about how do you parent children in the world. He says, beware of the one extreme of isolation and beware of the other extreme of um, unthinking assimilation, immersion, that you just, anything goes. But instead, there's that maturity that enables a child to biblically engage culture as he or she grows to adulthood. Armed with a biblical discernment of the culture and its idolatries and its flaws and holding to a biblical worldview, that's what the goal of parenting is. And that same goal goes for adults in our own interactions with the world, our schooling maybe as adults or our community involvement and our jobs. So there's the resistance of conformity in terms of biblical worldview. But a third way that the young men resisted being conformed to the pagan world system was the one that probably sticks out to you the most here in Daniel 1, and that is they resolved not to eat the food and drink from the king's table. And this is described, and we see the results of it here. Daniel, verse 8, resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. By the way, we could do a side study in biblical peacemaking from this, the way Daniel approaches this. In fact, I think Ken Sandy in his book, The Peacemaker, talks about this as one of the examples he gives of wise biblical peacemaking. When you're seeking to um, achieve a goal and you're working with people who might have other goals in mind, other concerns, and, and we could look at just some of the aspects of that briefly. Daniel came humbly Do you notice how he doesn't come haughtily or demanding, and he doesn't go on a hunger strike? Um, He asks humbly for some of these things. And the first higher official refuses him, but you can tell he's not completely against him because it says in verse 9, and God gave, the second gave, gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And so um, Daniel goes to a lesser official, to the steward or the guard, and he comes with this plan. And Daniel comes aware of, and in biblical peacemaking you have to do this, you have to really seek to understand what the other person's concerns are. You don't come just asserting your interests and your concerns. Daniel knew what the concerns were. The chief official told him that they were worried about having their heads chopped off. They didn't want to have things go wrong. They had the responsibility to get these young men ready, to fatten them up, so to speak, and to have them presentable. And so Daniel came very much aware of that. He knew what the other party's concerns were, what the danger was in verse 10. And Daniel comes also in this peacemaking way, suggesting a reasonable plan that would hopefully meet the concerns of both parties involved. Here's the 10-day plan. We can try it. And, you know, if you think we're not living up to how we should look, then you can call it off. It's reasonable. It's a good plan. It, it's working toward everyone's interests. And 
and we see what God brings about. Daniel doesn't grow angry when his first attempt with the chief official doesn't go well. I like to think that possibly the steward liked the idea in part because he could take the choice, rich food, the meat, the wine that was supposed to go to Daniel and his four friends, and for those days, he would get it all. So he was living well in those days. So Daniel and his friends resisted in this way. They've resisted in terms of their names. They, we see that they t- do also resist in just unthinking assimilation with the language and literature, but we might ask, we might step back and see and say, what is it exactly what, what was wrong about eating this food? There are lots of different views about this. Verse 8 says that Daniel had resolved not to him, defile himself, and we might think, well, what exactly did that mean? Most of us maybe would think immediately, well, it has to do with Old Testament ceremonial law. But interestingly, that's not the only view. In fact, Probably it wasn't true. It wasn't the fact that they were trying to remain merely true to the Old Testament dietary laws. Why do I say that? Three reasons. One is, if that's the case, why did Daniel resolve to refrain from wine? The Old Testament dietary laws did not prohibit wine. The only prohibition of wine was for the Nazarite vow, a very limited thing. And they're not Nazarites. So the fact that he was abstaining from wine is a powerful one. A second argument is the prophets of the pre-exilic period. If you read in Hosea chapter 9, Amos 7, they make it clear that it's going to be impossible to keep kosher in exile. One of the results of the judgment of God in exile is that you can't keep kosher. It's not, a, it's not possible to do. Look at Hosea 9.3 or Amos 7.17. 7, but also, and this is the most powerful argument in my mind, later in the book, when we get to Daniel chapter 10, verse 3, when we see Daniel at that point in the third year of Cyrus the king, and Daniel gives himself to mourning and praying for three weeks, it says, I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth. Well, wait, didn't Daniel not eat these things for 70 years? This is about near the end of that time. No, the clear implication of Daniel 10.3 is that Daniel was abstaining from these things for three weeks. What, did he just kind of fall away from his true faithfulness to God and the dietary laws? No, you see what I'm saying? Chapter 10 makes it clear that um, Daniel is apparently at that point regularly eating things like these delicacies and meats and wine um, because his three-week prayer and semi-fast is when he abstains from them. But we don't see any evidence there that Daniel is somehow sinning or compromising, especially in his time of maturity at that point. So, all those three arguments point to me, to the, and this isn't new with me, to the fact that this was not simply observing the dietary laws. Um, the other option that I also don't think is true is that they, was sim- they were simply abstaining from food offered to idols. Again, 
That would have been true in Daniel chapter 10 as well. All the food was offered that way in the king's court. So the Daniel 10 argument would stand as well. Plus, it is almost certain that all types of food in Daniel 1 that they ate would have been offered to the Babylonian gods. They had a tradition that all the food would be offered to the gods and the gods would eat whatever they would want, which wouldn't be any, of course, and then the king would get the rest. And so the vegetables would have been offered to the gods as well. A better answer is the one that, that I am putting forth here, and that is Daniel and his friends are standing on the truth that their dependence is on God, not the king. Part of the purpose of them eating from the king's table is to establish their dependence on the king. He is their provider. And they are going to privately assert their true provider and sustainer is God. Let me note these two aspects of this. Notice that this is a temporary regimen. It's for these three years of preparation. Apparently, it didn't continue past the three years. What was happening during those three years? Their minds and their bodies are being nourished by the Babylonian court and conformed to the mindset of the Babylonian court. And what did this special diet do? It kept these four young men from believing that their physical appearance or strength and, by consequence, their intellectual gifts and growth, that these things were the gift of the Babylonian court and the king. No, this special diet was a reminder of their true dependence on God, just as if you might fast for a meal and you're hungry and you're reminded to pray and you're reminded that, boy, ultimately this fast reminds me that my dependence is on God alone. I think that's especially powerful when you think of the three experiences of gave. In verse 2, and verse 9, and verse 17, when we see that God gave them learning and skill. God gave them success. The goal of this temporary diet was that they would be constantly reminded that their dependence was on God. And notice also that this restricted diet was essentially private. It wasn't a public thing. The steward or the guard knew. We don't know if the chief official knew completely that this is what the guard or the steward was doing. And certainly when they come before the king, you don't have any sense that he knows this. Because when they're finally brought before him, the impression is that the king is pleased that his system has worked. And these young men have been highly successful. You don't see him saying, boy, and they did this on vegetables? That's amazing. No, that's not what they're saying. In fact, the king most certainly would have thought that he is completely in control, but these young men know differently. They know that their God is in control. By the way, as an aside, this temporary diet in modern America would look like a healthy diet, right? We read this and think, "Mm, low in saturated fat, high in fiber. Well, that's why they were looking good, but rather, no. These men, and it says that at the end of the time, They looked fatter. They looked fat, robust. It was a high-calorie diet that was needed for them to be like that. And so the implication is that their robust appearance after the 10 days is not because it's a healthier diet. It's because of the work of God. It is God's work. It's not that they're on a low-fat diet. The, The 
the, the fatter, the robust appearance was usually attained by a rich diet in meat and wine. But God shows by these results that we read here that he is ultimately the one providing for them, however foreign that thought might have been in the Babylonian court. Daniel was asserting and reminding himself of his dependence on God. And I I would just want us to stop and think of the application at this point. We've talked about the reprogramming here in our point two. This has all been point two up till now, Um, all of this, about the food and, and the names. How do you and I need to be alert to ways that we are buying into a worldly view of life? You know, in a sense, we reside in Babylon. The church is in the world, but not to be of the world. But even so, we must think biblically about ourselves and our lives, and our trust must be in the Bible's God, not the gods of this world. And some of you may be in the world's educational system, getting a law degree or getting some other kind of engineering degree. Um, Maybe you're rubbing shoulders daily in the workplaces of the world, or maybe your friends or your neighborhoods or schools. Think about it as you apply this. What is one key area in which you may need to resolve to assert your ultimate trust in God alone and to think and act differently because of that, to walk to a different drumbeat? One of the speakers at the training seminar yesterday spoke about his young adulthood and how living with a woman outside of marriage, which he did for a time, made completely good sense to him. He didn't have any inkling that this was somehow wrong. And it wasn't until he came to Christ and he saw God's purposes for marriage that you didn't get the benefits of a close relationship until you had the obligation of a covenantal commitment to your wife that this was the way it's supposed to work. But his point was, he didn't have a clue about this. It would have made perfect sense to live with someone. We must fight and war against community conformity to the world as exiles. But my last point is this. One final thing to know in exile is that we need to know God's faithfulness and his grace to his people, even in their exile, even as strangers and sojourners in the world. And I like this in, a, in the second gave at verse 9, where it says that God gave Daniel favor and compassion into the sight of the chief eunuch. One of the words there, favor, is mercy. It's the same word that in 1 Kings chapter 8, when Solomon is praying, when the temple's being dedicated and the Shekinah glory of God des- descends, even then Solomon prays at one point, when you send them into exile... Because even then, he knows, under inspiration of God, that the people are going to be sinful. They're going to rebel. And one of the specific prayers Solomon prays there is that when the people end up in exile and pray to you, that the Lord would cause their captors to show, and it's the same word, favor, mercy. Same word as verse 9. So, we see that the attitude of the chief official is given by God. It's part of God's grace to his people in exile. In this situation of the special diet, it's proving God's provision and his faithfulness that he is with them. And then in the overall results in verse 
17, when God gives them real success in this whole plan, and they're so exceptional, and they're brought before the king. It's not just that these young men were granted by their faithful God to be healthy, but they were granted to remain faithful to him in their exile. It was no small thing. It was an amazing work of God. And God's faithfulness to his people is even seen in the final verse, verse 21, where it's not just a notation there. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. The chapter begins with going into exile. It ends with the first year of King Cyrus when Cyrus issues the decree for the return. Praise be to God. Think how Daniel would have felt when that took place. Over these long 70 years, God was faithful. So this is not simply a bare statement of the fact that Daniel was still around at that point. No, this is a concluding statement about God's keeping power to enable Daniel to continue to live as a believer in a pagan land all those years. And not just to barely survive, but as we will see, to be a witness to Yahweh, the true God, time and again. And we're going to see God is faithful to his people through all their tribulations and all the trials that they will endure because he is the faithful God. So part of the message of the book of Daniel is we must seek the wisdom and the perseverance of Daniel and his friends. Yes, dare to be a Daniel as the hymn and the song goes. Our God is faithful to his people who have been purchased by the blood of a faithful Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But even beyond that, and I like it the way one author writes, and I'll conclude with this quote, the good news of the gospel, however, is not simply that God is faithful to those who are faithful to him. Praise be to God that that's not all that it's saying. It is that a Savior has come to deliver faithless and compromised saints like us. Our salvation rests not on our ability to remain undefiled by the world, but rather on the pure and undefiled offering that Jesus has provided in our place. Jesus Christ came voluntarily into this world with all of its pains and trials. He endured far greater temptations and suffering than Daniel did or that we ever will. Yet he remained entirely faithful and pure until the very end without spot or blemish and grants the perfection of his obedience to all who trust in him. Praise be to God. And then the author of Hebrews has these words as we close. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Father, thank you that in our journey, that this week when we live in a culture that is often hostile, that doesn't really want to understand us or know what we stand for, uh, that you are with us, that Jesus Christ is our faithful high priest who has gone before us, before us, who has experienced the ultimate exile from God on the cross, that we might be brought near, that the spotless one would be slain 
for us and raised from the dead that we would be given new life and so that we would be enabled to live as your people, even as strangers in a strange land, and yet looking forward to that day when we will enter into our true home. We ask that you would keep us faithful, help us to persevere, give us your wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen.